The Things We All Carry is a podcast about first responders and their stories surrounding trauma on the job. The intention of this podcast is to raise awareness and share meaningful conversation around a subject often viewed as taboo or simply ignored. Be aware this content may be graphic and it is real. It may not be suitable for children or adults triggered by this subject matter. Welcome to episode 38 of The Things We All Carry. Recently, I had the pleasure of meeting Jeremy Johns. He describes himself as a regular guy. However, the experiences he has had throughout his careers are anything but regular. Jeremy served three tours in Iraq prior to joining the fire service. The situations he was faced with and have overcome are astounding. Jeremy has transformed his negative experiences into something which everyone can benefit from. He is the founder and the face of The Resilient Rescuer, which highlights overcoming adverse events and traumatic experiences in relation to first responders and military personnel. Jeremy has spoken at a variety of conferences regarding his struggles with mental health and how he has developed his own resiliency. A quick reminder to please help us build a community which not only recognizes, but supports each other through the struggles and recovery. Reach out through Instagram at the things we all carry or email my story at the things we all carry.com to offer support and share your story. Please remember to leave a review on iTunes and give a shout out to any first responder you know, love, or care about. Y'all enjoy the show. Jeremy Johns, how you doing? I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for joining me today. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it too. Where are you at today? I am... I'm actually at home. I live in Gloucester, Virginia. Just got off shift this morning, but out in my garage where I like to hang out and try not to get in trouble. I guess how much trouble can you find in the garage? And that's a dangerous question. Plenty. Let's hear a little bit about your family history of where you grew up and what life was like growing up. Yeah. So I was born in Florida. What part of Florida? Uh, I was born at Homestead Air Force Base. Oh, Okay. Uh, yeah, which is no longer there thanks no. to Hurricane Andrew. Yeah, you know, it was wiped off the face of Florida, basically. Yeah, yeah, which kind of bummed me out because I like always wanted to go back to see you know, at least where I was born, but I guess I could go back to the land, but whatever. Yeah, so I was born there. My dad was in the air, was in the Air Force, uh, and for the very beginning, like the first few years of my life, that was typical military family life where born in florida then we went from there to california which i don't remember any of but from california we went to turkey we were there for a year my brother was born there i wish i could remember that that seems pretty cool but was there for a year came back to the states i was probably at this point i'm probably close to four and my dad gets stationed in barksdale air force base in louisiana that's where i that's where my memory really starts as far as being a kid. My parents they had a falling out and they ended up getting divorced. I remember bits and pieces of them fighting and arguing and stuff, but they did what was best for them. They So they got divorced. My mom remarried pretty quick. She remarried another guy who was Air Force as well. Um, my stepdad, who I actually, I consider, he's my father. He raised me from, I really He's all I remember, all I know. But he took me in. He was one like, like like me and my brother are one of his. He raised us. Amazing man. He did 24 years in the Air Force. I think that's the 
beginnings of my wanting to do something that's bigger than myself. I think that's where it got rooted for me. Just I was always enthralled by him, seeing him in his uniform and him coming home and just telling stories about what he did that day. He worked in the ammunition side of the Air Force, put together bombs, took them apart got weapons packages ready for whatever fighter jets they had at the at the time. He did some time as a weapons instructor, so he'd teach new pilots about what weapons do, what are best for what. And he'd bring home training videos, all these different bombs and rockets and stuff, just blowing stuff up. And I was just, I could have watched that stuff all day. I was going to say, at that age, it's probably hard not to catch the bug. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. And he would always get us fired up because, hey, do you want to see what happens to a tank when it blows up from the inside? Of do course. <laughs> of course we do. Yeah, I still so, want to see what happens. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so he I think he put the bug in me from an early, but a super typical kid. I grew up playing outside, drinking from the garden hose, playing in the woods until it got dark. I was in Cub Scouts, but we, we moved from Barksdale to Langley. In Hampton, Virginia, that was going into second, oh God, math, I think I was eight going into second grade, I think. But that's there, my my brother, my sister, my half-brother and sister, they came into the picture there. Again, grew up together, so I don't even, like, half-brother, he's my brother. Um, But I had a special needs sister that was born. She was born with a condition called Edwards Syndrome or Trisomy 18. They have a really low expect like life expectancy for those kinds of kids they usually don't survive the first few days and then the longer they go the more their chances of death increase but she instead of going to like the one or two days she ended up making it almost to her 13th birthday so she had a, a long life considering you know the medical issues that she had but because of her condition she got assigned to specialty doctors both at langley and a chkd in norfolk so because of that my dad was prohibited pretty much from being assigned to another base just because they didn't know if they would have the capabilities to take care of her. So he did a couple remotes, like one year remotes to like Korea. He did that a couple times, but pretty much from second grade on, I've lived in the Hampton Roads area of Virginia, but yeah, Cub Scouts, Boy Scouts, got in, I did a bunch of skateboarding, played baseball, but I think it was between my dad and seeing him in the military and then the stuff that I learned from scouts and the things that I had to learn to help take care of my sister so that my parents could have somewhat of a normal life, at least be able to go out for dinner or run an errand at least. I had to be able to take care of my sister, so I had to get infant CPR, CPR for special needs kids. I had to learn how to feed her through the tube in her stomach. I had to learn like choking, like how to clear a foreign object in her throat. She couldn't talk, she couldn't walk, but she was able to, she could see us and she'd laugh at us if we got in trouble or she could recognize us. But it was, it was a lot to take in as a kid. Like you see a lot of other families that they could just pick up and go and do different things. But we were anchored to this area and my parents were anchored to my sister and being being able to take care of her wherever they were we wanted to go. So it was a lot of my mom would go and take us to baseball or whatever. And then the next time my dad would take us and they'd switch off. But it was really hard for all of us to go and do something as a family. But I think my parents did as best a job as they could. I can't think of any time where we did without or that we didn't get some kind of an experience. My dad took us fishing all the time, and we did 
all the stuff that a kid would, most kids want to do, we were pretty much able to do. So you spend the rest of your childhood in Hampton Roads area and you graduate high school there? Yep. Yep. I graduated from Tab High School in Yorktown in 96. Uh, and I had been working with two of my really good friends. They were, they graduated a year ahead of me, but they got into this computer business and they were like, dude, it's work, but it's not really work. We're cutting up all day and getting paid to goof off. So I was like, oh, I need to get in on that. Got in on that. And I tried going to, I tried going to Thomas Nelson, what used to be Thomas Nelson. Now they changed their name, but tried community college, did that for about a year. And I found out quickly that school was not my bag. So I floundered a little bit after high school, but, but yeah, that's pretty much my upbringing. So where do you go once you flounder? What do you, how do you get out of it? So at the time I, I wouldn't say I was like, like in a downward trajectory. I just didn't have any real prospects. I was pretty much, I'd go to work with my buddies, cut up all day, do some work, but get off and we'd either go skateboarding or I'd gotten into a, another buddy, another group of friends. They had a, they'd start up a band and I play bass guitar I'd go over there and we would mess around and jam out, do that drink and not really be productive in that sense, but it was fun. But I, I met my wife who way back, we are both of our brothers played baseball together as kids. So I met her and her dad through my brother's baseball team. And one of the coaches, he got a like out of the blue assignment, like, Hey, you got to go to Korea for a year or so. They were losing a coach. I'm sitting in the bleachers one day, just waiting for my brother's practice to be done. And they, like, a couple of the guys come on. They're like, hey, does anybody like baseball? And, yeah, I like baseball. I played baseball. So I raised my hand. They're like, would you be interested at all in helping coach this team? Because we're losing a guy. And we can't find anybody else. So, yeah, I'm here anyway because of my brother. Yeah, yeah, I'll help. So I, I met my wife's dad, who was one of the other coaches. So I got in good with him in the beginning just because helping coach the kids' baseball team. But I saw my wife at the time, well, before, way before that, but I saw her at a couple practices, but she'd always worked a concession stand and on ball on game day. So found myself going to the concession stand a lot. That was, gosh, that was probably two years before we even started dating. But two years go by, she went to college. Um, and then one day I ran into her mom and she was telling me, you should give Jessica a call. She might want to go out. So I was like, oh, okay. She, uh, she's going to school at William & Mary at this point. So I'm like, oh God, she's like really smart. And she's going to find out that I'm like a total loser. But, <laughs> Aren't we all though at, like, at times? <laughs> right. Absolutely. So I was like, ah, what's the worst thing she can say now? So I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. So I call her up and she's, oh my God, I would love to go out. So we hit it off. But I found dating her that. I definitely needed to have some kind of direction because she was on this trajectory of she's at William and Mary and she's getting a degree in political science and foreign diplomacy and international relations, like all this really high level stuff. I'm like, okay, I got to do something more than skateboarding and working at a computer store. I started talking to both of our dads about different things that I could do. And they both, said maybe the maybe the military they can if you don't know what you want at least maybe you can find something that you do like some some kind of direction or at least find out what you really don't like so i was like okay yeah sure so i started that process 
with the Air Force, growing up Air Force. Her parents, my wife's parents, her, her dad's Air Force. So that's all I knew. So I started with the Air Force, did all their paperwork. And this is before September 11th. So there was like no rush to get anything done. So I go do all the medical screening and I do all of the tests and everything. And I scored really well on their, their aptitude test. So they're like, you can do anything, any job in the Air Force that you want to do aside from like pilots and that kind of thing. But else you can, you have a high enough score, you can do it. So I was like, sweet, I'm going to do some James Bond, Intel kind of stuff. Cause like I can see that has application outside. So I'm starting to do, do the paperwork for that. And then September 11th happens. Uh, I remember I was at work. I was actually going into work and right as I'm pulling into a driving spot, I was listening to FM 99 and they said, Oh, sounds like an airplane hit the world trade center. And I'm thinking probably what everybody thought that's probably some Cessna, some trying to get a little too close moron. So get out of the car. And from the time that I got out of the car till I got in the building, the footage was out and like all my coworkers were all huddled around this one TV. And I'm like, what are you guys doing? And so we sit there and we watch and I actually watched, I saw the second plane go in and my the bot, my boss, the guy who owned the company, he was like, I think everybody should go home. Yeah, it's probably a good idea. So I go home and as I'm driving home, I'm like telling myself, I think this is, this is, the moment that I need to do something. I, just, I felt we were attacked and I needed to do something more than work at a computer store. So I was like, okay, the military is definitely where I'm going. So I got on, went back to the recruiter and of course they're frantic at this point. Everything is heightened alerts and there's, they're not letting anybody into the recruiting office. You have to get call in and get, make an appointment and get cleared and all this kind of craziness. But I eventually get in, talk to my recruiter. He's yeah, we're waiting on a couple signatures, you know, it, it shouldn't be too long. And that it shouldn't be too long drug for the better part of almost eight months. The Air Force got super strict about who they were letting in. They only wanted certain career fields, uh, you know, certain scores, all these particular things. They were super picky. Just like, we need to get a signature to let you go to the next, to the next process or the next step. And I kept waiting and waiting. I'm like, I need to do something. I'm like, I'm dying here. I need to, I want to do something. Finally got fed up took all my paperwork and went outside and I didn't know what I was going to do with it. But I saw an army recruiter out there smoking. So I was like, army, I haven't thought about the army, but the army sounds pretty cool. So walk over to him and I have all this paperwork and I said, give him the, the whole spiel about, you know, what I'm going through today. I, I need to get in. What can you do for me? And he looks through it all and all his work was already done for him. This is too easy. I can get you into boot camp quick. I was like, sweet. So all we have to do is redo your medical screening because it had been like over a year at this point. So I go and I do that, sit down with the recruiter or the recruiter at the, in Richmond. And he's like, what do you want to do? So the Air Force guy said I could do whatever I want. So, you know, what are my options here? He's not many because you're colorblind. I'm like, huh. I am not colorblind. I see colors just fine. He's like, yeah, says here you're colorblind. So that takes, it involves computers or maps. You can't do. Oh my God, what's left? You can push paper like an administrative clerk or you can be a medic. So I was like, I had interest in the medical stuff when I was growing up as a kid. Okay, I'll do medic. He's like, all right. So start pushing the paperwork that way. He's like, I got a couple things I got to go get done real quick. Here, watch this video. Pops in a video of promoting paratroopers. All these dudes jumping out of airplanes and looking super cool. He, he comes back. He says, does that interest you at all? I'm like, that looks awesome. 
He's yeah, like, you get paid. You get paid to do it. I'm like, oh, I get paid on top of that. I'm like, oh, sign me up. So he gets out of my contract that I'm going to go to jump school. So go to basic training down in South Carolina, Fort Jackson. From there, went to my advanced school in Fort Fort Sam Houston in Texas. Did four months of medical training there. Like the first, it was a little over two weeks. They crammed EMT basic down our throats, got us nationally registered there. And then the rest of it was all field medicine and then from there, went to jump school in Fort Benning, and George was there for three weeks. And then during that, you could pick your wish list of where you want to get assigned, what do what bases you'd like to go to. And all three of mine were Fort Bragg, so that's all I want to do. Graduation day comes, and they're having us, they have a stand-in-line alphabetical order, and they're handing out your assignments. And it was like just down the line, like Fort Bragg, Korea, Fort Bragg, Korea. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to Korea. And... A buddy of mine that I kept in touch with for a while, actually, but he was directly in front of me and he gets to it in their Korea. And I'm like, oh man, and hand me Fort Bragg. I'm like, thank God. I do not want to go to Korea. So go to Fort Bragg. Uh, and I was there a couple weeks and the unit that I got assigned to was already overseas. They sent me to Iraq not too long after that. Now describe the what you were doing, what unit you were assigned to. So I was assigned to the 2nd Battalion of the 325th Airborne Infantry Regiment. Fort Bragg is the home of the 82nd Airborne Division. They are all, the whole division is light infantry. So you have other installations where they're mechanized infantry, so they're tanks. Or they, other places have specialties, but... Fort Bragg is all of them are light infantry might drive Humvees around, but most of the time we're walking. So if we can't get airdrop into a place, then they'll get as close as they can. And we walk the rest of the way. Yeah. Fort Bragg was, it was really, it was a really cool place to be. Um, Cause so you have the 82nd that's there and then that's also home for special forces. So all their, most of the groups are, at Fort Bragg, and then you'll also get rangers will come through every once in a while for training. But being that close to the Special Forces community all the time, they were a suburban would pull up at the back of her aid station, and a couple guys would get out. Hey, we got whatever medical lab is going on. It could be like goat labs or pig labs or just different types of medical training that they were going through and like we got we got three empty spots do you want to send three of your guys to come through with us yeah so it was about once a month we were sending anywhere from two to five guys to this really high speed like macgyver training these guys were at the end of their like the special forces medics at the end of their training they're like on the edge of being like pa level some doctor level stuff they're really really advanced what they're capable of so just being able to be there with them and watch we learn so much from these guys but every once in a while they would they'd pull us over and hey this is how you do whatever the skill they were working on they would show us how to do it and then they would let us do it so we were really fortunate that we were there and able to get this really high level training that a lot of medics in other places just weren't going to get so it was awesome to be able to do that kind of stuff so you get you get to your unit and brag, and you say it's just a couple of weeks, and you're going to Iraq, correct? Yeah. 
So what year did you first go to Iraq? I first went to Iraq in 2003, toward the end, August of 2003. So my unit had been with the initial push in March. They did the initial push or the initial invasion. So I got there in it was late September, early August. And it was a really, that was a really hard time to really to be anywhere after this group of guys they were there for the beginning of the of the entire war they made the pushes they had the first firefights all these landmark events that they're that they were going through and i show up a few months after that so it was really hard for me because i got a lot of the new guy doesn't know anything you weren't here for the beginning you weren't here for whatever firefight you weren't here for all these different things and i it's nothing I could help, but it was, it made me try exponentially harder to just to, just to impress them and to let them know that, that I'm, all I want to do is soak up as much of their knowledge as I can. I had, I think my willingness to, I knew where, I knew where I fell in the pecking order. I was, I was bottom rung. Me and another buddy of mine that I went to basic with, we were like every step of our from signing up till we get to the unit, we were together pretty much. He was very outspoken. I'll put it that way. Your buddy was? Yeah. That's not really the best way to go into a unit. Not at all. Not at all. If somebody told him to do something, his first responses were why, or this is dumb. And like, they could have told me dig a 12 foot hole and bury yourself. And I'm like, okay. And I would have done it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I just start working. If we would do PT, they would PT us to literal muscle failure. And I just, to the point, like I we're doing pushups and I just physically cannot do another pushup, but I have just enough energy that I can hold my chest off the ground. And I'm just holding it. And they're like, push up. And I'm, like, I'm trying, I'm trying. And my buddy's just losing his mind. You know, this is, oh, this is BS. And, he's, and so he would direct all the heat away from me and they would, you know, they'd flip out on him and, it's always yeah, good well, to have always good to have somebody to do that for you. Not for him, oh, but for you, it's great. Absolutely, absolutely. And at one point, one of the one of the more senior guys, after I got my my daily hazing, I'm trying to get myself cleaned up, and he comes over to me and he's, "You're doing a good job. Just keep doing it." I was like, "Okay, I'm making a name for myself as far as that they they know that I'm gonna do I'm gonna do work." So I, I know that you have three tours total in Iraq, correct? Correct. And they're all the same unit and the same job. Yep. And it progressively gets more responsibility and tougher as you go, correct? Yeah. Yep. For sure. Um, because each time I go, I had, at that point, I had gone up in rank. So with rank comes responsibility. So every deployment, I was a higher rank. So I had just more things I had to keep track of. And how would you de de describe those tours, those three tours? I know they all probably had their own experiences, their own trials and tribulations, and, and probably their own, the good is in there somewhere too. Yeah. But you highlighted a couple of things for me, and obviously there's some things you want to talk about, those second and third rotations, but I'll let you go off on those. Yeah, so the first deployment, that was just, that was just like the initial learning curve. Part of the world, none of us have been in around people that we had, we knew nothing about. So it was just a lot of learning. I remember when these first became a thing. Because at the time, in the from my first deployment, we were driving around in light-skinned Humvees. So it was like a Jeep with no doors, 
it was like that kind of thing. We had no doors, no anything on them. We're driving with our legs hanging out the side. And then we, we got these flyers that were passed around. Watch out for IEDs. And I'm like, I remember the first time I got it, I'm like, IED. I don't know what that is. Crumble it up, threw it away. And then one, one of our, we went to do a resupply at another another base. And one of the trucks was just medics because they were going to go get medical supplies. And it wasn't 10 minutes out of it that they were out of the gate that you hear this explosion. And then the radio comes up with, hey, the medical truck was hit by an IED. And I knew all three of the guys that were on that truck. And I'm like, oh, my God, IEDs are that's a real thing. So just that initial learning curve of what the rest of the war was going to be like. Um, the second deployment, it was like the Wild West. By the second deployment, we had a pretty good understanding of what the Iraqis or whoever was coming into that area. We had a pretty good idea of what they were after, what they wanted to do, what their capabilities were. And they had a good understanding of what our capabilities were. So it was, I think that's, that was 2000, 2003, 2004. So we were, it was more, it was a, like, like this is a war. This is real fighting. Cause the first one, it was like random drive-bys or nothing like real clearly thought out. They were just a drive-by, shoot at us and they take off. But this one, they were actually setting up ambushes they were planning ieds they had done their they had done their research that they knew where we were driving when we would drive down it and they would they would plant ieds all along the route they would know hey if something spooks them out on this route this is where they're going to go they had done their homework we learned really quick that the people that we were fighting over there they were not dumb that they were they had the advantage all day they knew that area like the back of their hand and so the second deployment it was just like at that point we were driving that's when up armored humvees and up armored vehicles in general had those had come in so we were as soon as we drive out of our compounds we were taking gunfire and like i had mentioned before with being light infantry we a lot of units would go to a main fob or forward operating base and they would operate out of that so they, every day they would come out of the FOB, do their missions, then go back to the FOB. Whereas us, we would live in the area that we were operating in. So we would find some kind of a compound, we would take it over, and we would live in it and operate out of it. So we were, the only time we went back to these forward bases is was for like resupply, refuel. So we were just in it for the entire deployment. And they knew where we were. So we would get, they would mortar attack us almost daily. Every time we go out there, we were taking gunfire. IEDs were, if not daily, it was every other day. But it was all the time to the point where, you know, like hearing that one of our trucks got hit by an IED was like, it was as likely as me waking up in the morning. It's like, you know, somebody got hit by an IED. How many is that for them? What is that mentality, like that expectation, what does that do to you as a person when you're in that always? It definitely changes you. It definitely changes you. That's when I, because on the first deployment, you you have that kind of like when you're a teenager, I'm indestructible. I have the best training in the world. We're going to win this because at the time, again, Iraqis, they're, they're wearing these man dresses and they're dumb, third world country kind of stuff. But that quickly ended when we realized what they were capable of. So going in on my second and then eventually my third deployment, going into it, 
I would, I had to get myself mentally prepared. There's a good chance that I might not come home on this deployment. And just wrapping your head around that, I would, I saw a couple guys who they just like, they had, like, I can only, what I can only describe is like a nervous breakdown. Like they just had like this snap and they would freak out. They can't do it. And they'd get sent off somewhere. I don't even know where, but. I wasn't going to let that be me, but I just had to, I accepted that at least I was going to be doing something that I felt had a, that I had a purpose, but it's, it definitely changes you when you could go of things that, that would normally make you afraid. And, you, and I would tell myself if I get hit, if I get hit by an IED, I just hope that if it's a bad one, I hope it kills me because I don't want to have limbs blown off and could happen. I just hope that it's quick and I don't even know it. On one hand, I think that's, it's crucial to being successful in that kind of environment. Cause then once you accept that fact, it's not, at least for me and the guys that I was with, we weren't reckless with that. We just accepted that this is part of our job. This is part of what we're doing. There is there are very high stakes and very high consequences in this kind of environment. And we would accept that was part of what, this is what comes with the job. And we would accept that. Okay. I know that could happen. Now I'm going to do my job to the best of my ability. And if that happens, it happens. And I think it made me a better, it definitely made me a better soldier. It made me a better medic, but I think that kind of mindset it's not healthy when we come back home because people shouldn't be, I don't think people should just be like, okay with going to work today and today I might die. I don't think that's, I don't want to say it's not normal, but I just don't think it's healthy. I would, I would say it's not normal. You know, even as firefighters, we have a job where we accept that there's some danger in our job, but we don't go to, we don't go to work expecting to die. That's, there's a right. big difference in accepting danger and accepting risk and going into work expecting to die yeah that's a huge difference and the, the toll that has to take mentally and emotionally has got to be a massively different as well i would assume i've never been in that position yeah it's um i think in the moment like when like when i would make my peace with you know, like before the de before deployment i just i'd have my personal time and just sit with myself and hash out when, when i'm thinking gear myself up and I would make peace with it that this could be the last time that, you know, that like, like right before we leave Fort Bragg, you know, like this might be the last time that I'm alive in my own country. And in the moment, I thought this is the right thing. This is the right way to think of it. But yeah, I really don't. Looking back and where I'm at now, I think that I, I know I could have handled or at least thought of that in a different way, you know, that. Instead of thinking I'm going to die, I could get hurt or there's a chance that I might die, but not be so accepting of it. Yeah, that's a different, that's definitely a reframing of it. It's not just an acceptance of it. Right. So when do you come back from that second rotation and what does it feel like to come back to, to, to the country, to the U S from that kind of. I don't that kind of tension and that kind of emotion. It was hard. It was real hard because you have like your, I mean, our guard was up 
24 hours. I think the only time that we weren't really guard wasn't all the way up is when we were asleep and we would sleep in shifts. So somebody was always awake. So you're always on guard. You're always expecting to get some kind of an attack. You're just always ready for something to happen. And I think that they've done a pretty good job now where there's a process to coming back home where like for us, we would like, they'd send us to another base and we would palletize all of our equipment and then you would be at that base for anywhere from two days to maybe a week max waiting for enough aircraft to take your whole unit home. But I think now they do a really good job of slowly reintroducing you to like, so you have that, that week of time in country and then you come home and there's another period of time where, you know, you're getting readjusted to being back in the States and then the, you go back to your family. But for us, it was, you went from Iraq for the whole time. You might have two or three days waiting for a flight and then boom, you're back in the States and having that level of, you know, your guard being up and the, I think the military as a whole, but definitely for the army and in the unit I was in, you found really fast that having a heightened level of aggression was, it was, it kept you alive. Cause if you were always ready to fight, then when something kicked off, you were just ready to go to, and then going back home and you land and you walk into the hangar where all of our families are, they got flags and welcome home and all that stuff. And you're thrown right back to your family. And the, all those things that you've been, that have been keeping you going on that deployment, they just don't turn off like the lights. So it was really hard coming back home. I found that just driving that I avoided potholes. I avoided the edges of the road. I avoided manhole covers. I avoided if there was trash or a dead animal or whatever on the side of the road, I would go out of my way around it. They actually at one point after we got home, they had to sit us down as a unit and tell us we weren't allowed to drive in the middle of the road. Because <laughs> it was so prevalent yeah. with you. Yeah. So wherever we would go over there, like it could be like, like an interstate six lanes wide. We would go straight to the middle of that and just drive down and like we owned it. Like you can't do that. There's cars coming the other way. There's traffic laws. There's all this stuff. You got to stay in your lane and readjusting back to that. It took a long time for just instinct to wear off that there isn't, there's not a bomb on the side of the road waiting to get me. There's not something in that pothole. There's just all these guards that I had up it took a long time to start letting them down that aggression level that at least I know I had, but a lot of us, that wasn't the people back home. They didn't live with that kind of thing. They weren't used to that. They weren't ready for that. So it was really hard to like get into a group of people and not be comfortable. Somebody in here has a gun or whatever. So it was really difficult to switch all that back to quote unquote normal life. Um, and it definitely, that's where, after my second trip, that's when I started noticing that things were different and that I was, I felt like I didn't have the ability to stop what I was feeling, what I was doing. 
What do you mean by that? So like the first thing I noticed was my sleep and I wasn't sleeping well. I would wake up in the middle of the night, like panic attacks, drenched in sweat. First few nights I would wake up and like first thing I would do was I was reaching for my rifle and my, my body armor and which wasn't there. So then that for those first few seconds, somebody took my stuff and I'm freaking out. And my wife and you're like, hey, would you try to calm me down? That was weeks of every night waking up like that. I had told myself, like, it's just part of the process. It's part of coming back home, you know, that once I get back into a regular swing of things, this will go away. And the nightmares and the panic attacks waking up out of that kind of thing, those did start to subside. But my sleep was still terrible. Maybe getting an hour or two of sleep a night, nightmares all the time. Uh, always on edge, always on guard, not very trusting of people. I was also very, became very bitter toward people because you, over there, I mean, it's a third world country and they're, they don't have anything really running water. They don't have any of that kind of stuff. And you come over here and people are complaining because they had to wait 10 minutes in the Starbucks line. People have no idea how good we have it here. And it just made me angry. And I would snap at people. I'd snap at strangers, but that they didn't understand what they, you don't know how good you have it or you're ungrateful. I was very bitter, but the sleep, I think, was the first piece that if I think if I had addressed my sleep better, that things might have been different for me. But I just wrote it off like it'll get better on its own or I can handle it. And I couldn't, it just kept getting worse and it developed into insomnia. But just talking with buddies of mine, they were all of us, all of us had sleeping issues. And you'd go to, you'd go to the, to the medical clinic and tell them, you're like, Hey, I can't sleep. And they don't, they wouldn't ask why or what else was going on. They'd be like, okay. And they'd write your prescription for Ambien. Which really doesn't make you sleep. It just knocks you out. And and down the road, I like as I got more into wanting to have better sleep, like you said, it knocks you out. You never get into that deep recoverative no. sleep with Ambien. Yeah, it just puts you down for a few hours. But because of how early I had to get up going for PT and start our duty days, I was having to take the Ambien pretty much as soon as I got home. As soon as I walk in the door, you know, I'd get out of my uniform, pop an Ambien. Because by the time it actually kicked in, it was about the time I'd go to bed. So I felt like all I was doing was sleeping and going to work. So after a few weeks of that, okay, I need to have something outside of work. So I just stopped taking the Ambien. But there were so many of us that were like, how did you sleep last night? Like garbage. Us being like, it's a lot like the fire service where we're ragging on each other and giving each other a hard time and cutting up and that kind of stuff. So it feels natural there, but outside of that environment, it's... There were so many, there were probably so many red flags as far as just mental health. Like these guys have issues, but we're just using dark humor and PT to, to mask it up. So on top of all that, then you get ready to go to your third rotation in 2005, yeah. correct? Yeah. So they diagnosed me with PTSD after my second deployment. It was about. It was probably a couple months before my third deployment. They they tell me you have PTSD, and like it was it was a like a badge of honor, like being having a mental health people tell us you got PTSD. 
was like, oh man, that's awesome, which is nuts. Buddies of mine would come in, oh, mental health says I got PTSD. Ah, they told me I had that two weeks ago. So yeah, they diagnosed me with PTSD, insomnia, and depression. And the fix is to go back to Iraq. And the fix is, yep, just keep going, keep doing. And they would ask you like, you know, do you think you can still, are you still able to function? Oh, I can definitely function. I'm totally good. Yeah, who's going to say no? Yeah, so doctor signs off on it and go back to our third, go on our third deployment. The third deployment, it was, in a lot of ways, I felt like that was the hardest one, at least for me. We weren't, from a kinetic standpoint, it, we we got into a few firefights. Nothing like the second deployment. Second deployment was, it was completely nuts. But the third one, it almost felt like a lot of it was like humanitarian aid because we were in a, we were in Talfar, which is really far North. We had set up an aid station there and they had just they had a few months before we got there. This city was like a hub for like bomb making and like insurgent boot camp and all this kind of stuff. The units that were there before us, they had pretty much told the town, if you are not involved in harming the U S then you need to leave the city. And the people that stayed, they got carpet bombed. They carpet bombed the living hell out of that town. Like before we went in, they showed us like aerial photography of this is where our operating area is going to be. This is where we're going to be based out of. And you could just see the pockmarks from the bombs. It almost looked like the surface of the moon. Uh, And they told us like, it's pretty much a ghost town. There's nobody there. So it should be really quiet for you guys. Okay, cool. So we get in, set our stuff up. And it was really quiet. We would do patrols and we'd go out for two, three hours walking around. You, The only people you would see were dead people in the street, um, which was really, it was just so bizarre and how quiet it was, which I think it got us more amped up. We're like, we just kept telling ourselves like any second it's going to, something's going to pop off and it didn't, but we were just on edge the whole time. But we had done such a good job with our patrolling that like a lot of the, uh, like surveillance, like helicopters, they were using Kiowas and they're the ones, they're a smaller helicopter. They got the huge dome on top, like a crazy camera. They would come in like really low in our area and we could actually, we could tell where the end of our operating area was in the next units. So as soon as the Kiowas would get to that line, they would climb to 2000 feet. And then when they'd come back into our area, they'd drop and they were like just above like rooftop. So they were really comfortable with how well we were keeping things locked down but the people started coming back back to the city and they knew that the aid station was there and they knew that their hospital just did not have the capabilities that a hospital should so they started bringing us whatever they had like family members that were that they couldn't leave the, they couldn't leave town they were there when they got carpet bombed and there were kids with all different types of blast injuries and there was one girl that they had used i don't know if it was in the carpet bombing but it was in it was during that period they were using white phosphorus and she had all of her both of her hands were like paddles or all of her fingers were fused together just from the heat from the phosphorus and but they were bringing us all these different types of injuries that we weren't accustomed to dealing with. We were bullet holes or blown off limbs. Like those, that was our bread and butter. We could deal with that, but 
blast injuries, um, like med- like medical issues we weren't that versed with. So they just they would come in droves. My stomach hurts, my heart hurts, just all these different issues. And we would treat them as best we could and we would send them back out. And there were so many instances of like child abuse where you could tell that this kid was put into a bowl, like a scalding pot of water. You could like perfectly round burn mark on their rear end. Like you, I, I know that's what that is, but there's nothing you can do about it. So all we can do is treat the, treat the wounds, but we were seeing all types of abuse injuries and that just, I felt just a human being standpoint that like it just, I almost felt like it broke me that this is what people are capable of. This is how ugly people can be to each other. And that bothered me so much more than any of the gunfights or ease, any of that stuff. And it just, it changed my entire, like my entire perspective on like what I was doing. Like I would later find out, like just doing for the presentation that I give on mental health about moral injuries. And I felt like that's what I was experiencing because despite as good, a, as good as we were trying to be about rebuilding this country, like giving them money to rebuild hospitals and clinics and rebuild their homes and help them stand their army back up and hire police, all this good stuff we were trying to do. And then you'd see these dozens of kids and adults too, but all these abuse, you know, just almost torture they would do each other. What's the point? You know, all this stuff that I'm doing that, you know, we're doing, and it, it, I just felt like it doesn't matter. We can do all the good in the world. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. And so after, after that deployment, the issues that I was already having with the sleep and the PTSD and uh, pretty sure I had depression before my third rotation, but all that was just, it became deeply entrenched in, in who I was at that point. So when do you come back from the third tour? I came back. Actually, I came back. It was my wife and I's anniversary. So it was December 28th of 2005. And what's the plan then? Are you... Are you, in your mind, are you thinking that this is a career or are you thinking at that point you're already planning to get out? I was actually on the fence because I felt like the level of experience that I had, the things that I had seen and done, um, that I was, I felt like I was, I was pretty good at my job. I was a good medic I, that I knew what I was doing. So I would tell myself, I could do this for a career, but my wife, she was already seeing the changes that I was going through the, the more negative issues that I was, that I'd been developing. Um, so she was very supportive. Like if you want to reenlist, then, you know, this is, she would always tell me it's your life. I'll support you with whatever you want to do, but I just need you to really think about it. So I would think about it. And once it was like once a week, they would send me to 
the retention office where the recruiter for our unit would try to sweet talk me into re-enlisting and I would always say I need more time. So I had at that point, I had almost a year to make a decision because I got out in 06, but I was really thinking about re-enlisting because I just felt this is, I'm good at this. And at this point, it's easy for me. So I was, what else could I do on the outside? I don't know. But a buddy of mine, um, after our second deployment, he he was recruited and picked up by special forces. So he wasn't with us on our third deployment. But after we got back, he came back. He'd made it through the whole pipeline. And they sent him back to us to recruit more of us. He came up to me and he's like, you should drop a packet for special forces. And I don't know. I'm not a very good, like, I'm a, I'm like a horrible runner. And he was, I was like, I'm not a very good runner. He's like, you don't gotta be good. You just gotta be consistently bad. I can do that. <laughs> so he kept, he'd come all the time. Like, dude, you need to drop a packet. So I started talking to my wife about it. And she told me that, if I was going to re-enlist, if you're going to re-enlist, then you're going to have to go special forces. You're going to, cause just their, the resources that they have is they pretty much have an unlimited budget. So anything they want, they get their, they can, they have like their own, like each group has its own doctor. So they're really good about taking care of their own. So she said, you need to go someplace where you're going to be able to continue to grow and get taken care of because we had a few friends that had gone special forces and they did nothing but boast about how amazing it was. So what makes the decision for you to get out? My wife, she gets pregnant with our son and I start thinking about, do I want my son to grow up an army or a military brat like I did bounce around all over the place? And I had a few friends that had kids and I don't know. I, mean, I remember so many times where, you know, go up to him. Hey, man, how's it going? Ah, could be better. Today's my daughter's birthday. I'm not there for it. And I remember another buddy of mine, his, we were, we'd only, it was on our second deployment. We'd only been in country about a week. His wife went in to have their daughter. And then her daughter, the daughter ended up passing away for, I don't know what the circumstances were, but they lost their daughter and they put a Red Cross message in for him. And it came through our, came through the aid station. So we went to our command and told him like, Hey, this guy's lost his daughter. And so they go to tell him and he asked, when, well, when am I, when do I get to go home? And the command said, that's not a priority right now. The mission's a priority and there's nothing you can do for a dead child. And I was like, Oh my God. And he we had to restrain him and pull him away because he was going to, he was definitely going to make a life altering decision if we let him keep going. But just thinking about all those things now, I need to be, we decided that we were going to start a family and I want to be there for that family. So I made the choice to get out. And so I did, my son was actually born the day I signed out and I'd heard about buddies of mine that you're like, Oh man, I'm going to sign out. I thought it was just an expression, but I found out that no, there's actually a notebook and you put in there, Jeremy Johns separating from the army 
at this time on this day. Wow, that's actually like a real thing. You actually do sign out of the military. Like a buddy of mine was like, hey, man, what are you doing? I just, my wife just had our son. I'm going back to the hospital and I'm out of the army now. But uh, yeah, so we, I had gotten, they'd given me a month of separation leave. So from the day my son was born on October 10th until my separation date, which is actually November 20th, I just had that time off. So we were able to get our things packaged up. We moved back to this area because my parents were still here. Her parents were still here. So it was an easy, it was an easy decision just to go back where family is. So we moved back here and I got a job working in a light store for the time being, because I actually, I had not used that year that I was debating whether I was going to get out or not. I didn't use any of it to actually figure out what I was going to do with myself. Cause I just figured it, something would just happen and it didn't, there was, I didn't do any of the work I should have done, but, but yeah, my, so we moved back home. I'm working at this light store. I'm actually working with one of my brothers cause he was home from college. So we're working together and my youngest brother had just started volunteering at, um, the fire department in, uh, in Yorktown, York County. So he just started doing that. He's been on a couple rides, whatever. And we had dinner one night and he was like, what are you going to do now that you're out? I'm like, I have no idea. Absolutely no idea. I got medical training, but I don't know if I'm going to work at a hospital or, or what. And my brother was said, you should be a firefighter. They're all EMTs. So I looked into it and said, okay. So I sub- dropped a, an application off with York County and they picked me up in February of 2007. So in 2007, you become a volunteer or a career? Career. Yep. Okay. I want career. They send us through Newport News um, is the biggest department on the peninsula. So they have their own academy. So all the area fire departments send their people through Newport News's academy. So February... Of 07, I go into the academy. I had to do, I had a national registry basic certification. So I had to get a Virginia certification. I did the written test and passed that. And then I had to schedule another day to do the practical. And I had to drive to Ivor to do my practical test, which that was like middle of nowhere for me. I mean, I thought, I don't know how many times I thought like I'm totally lost. There's nothing here. And then eventually I got there, but uh, yeah, it was like the fire department there in Ivor. They did all the practical testing. They were super cool. So I got that done. So I was a Virginia EMT in York County. They, all they require you to have is your basic. So did four months in the fire academy with Newport. Went back to York County. I get assigned to Station 3, which is up in Williamsburg. It borders Williamsburg City and then James City County. The three of them, they're all, they share borders. So we do a lot of, we did a lot of mutual aid uh, with each other. Uh, it's one of the busier stations. But get sent there. Awesome. I had an absolute blast. Like the first, gosh, the first year. I hated going on because we would do our shift schedule was five on six off. So we would day on day off for five shifts and six days off. So 
when our sixth day would come around, I would be like, I was like, oh man, I don't want to stop working. I was having such a good time that I hated not being at work. But going on calls as a basic, I was really limited to what I could. And I ended up becoming really good friends with my EMS supervisor where we still talk all the time now. But I'd come to him. I feel like there's so much more I could be doing, but my basic is keeping me from doing that. And in the beginning, he was like, I just get more time in. You'll get more comfortable with stuff and we'll see how it goes. Okay. A year, almost two years goes by and I come back to him like, yeah, being a basic sucks. I'm like, this is all the stuff I could do when I was in the army. And now I can drive a, drive the truck and give oxygen and help out the medic. And so my buddy was like, well, then go to paramedic school. Okay. So went to paramedic school in 2009 i was able to use the four for life program through the state license plates so that paid for all of my paramedic school which was awesome but it was that was a year program and that was really hard from a family standpoint because my son was at this point three and my daughter was born in 2007, so they're 13 months apart. So she's two. So we have a two-year-old, a three-year-old, and then I go to to paramedic school on top of my regular shift. So if class was on a duty day, they just let me go to class, and then I'd come back. And then if it was off, I just would just go on my own time. So I was on top of my regular shifts, going to class on my off days, which made it put that much more weight on my wife. So that made things a lot harder, but I graduated that in 2010 so, and had a blast. So throughout this, you still have all the stuff you brought in from the army and yep. you're going through medic school, you're in the fire department and you, have you dealt with any of the PTSD, the depression, anxiety, any of that stuff? Have you really dealt with that at all or is it just still there? Nope. It's just still there. So how does that start to show itself for you during that time? So I think the, the newness and the excitement of getting into the fire service that masked a lot of the issues I've been having. And then like just by nature of the job, not getting sleep, that that was already something that was, that didn't affect me that much because I was already sleeping like trash. So that just, I just rolled with that. But, um, but just this, that the new career being motivated, I found something that I can do that I like. I was just that I was really, I was in a really good spot in the beginning, but then that, like anything, the shininess of it wears off and all those issues that I had when I was in, in the army, they're still there. They were just, just waiting and we stopped getting raises. I don't even, to be honest, I don't remember why we stopped getting raises. It seemed like it was like across the country, like everybody stopped getting raises, but we stopped getting raises and that because everything continued to get more expensive. And then we were a smaller department. So we had chiefs that were very in your business all the time. So lots of micromanaging, lots of telling you what you can and can't do when you're at the station. You'd have to clear any kind of training with, you know, at least your district captain. And if he said no, then you couldn't do it. And they were, it was a lot of political, like, out of good old boy kind of system where it's like the district captain didn't like my lieutenant. So he would just say no to everything. 
and there was nothing my lieutenant could do. Um, so just having like having admin breathing down your neck, telling you, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And I'm like, I just need to keep making myself a better firefighter so that I can continue to move up. So I went through all the tech rescue class, went through some hazmat stuff and then found out that we weren't going to like our admin didn't want to use our tech team for anything. We'd call Newport news, which kind of, you know, that made us feel like, like, why do we even have this stuff? If you're not going to use us, that bothered me. And morale started to tank. Everybody was unhappy. And because of that, then all of my issues just started to flare back up. I started getting angry again. Uh, you know, I was bitter again. Just all those things I had in the army. Now they're back. And now I have at this point four, almost five years of neglecting all of it. That it's just been festering and getting incrementally worse over five years. And I was miserable. Um, I got to a point where, you know, like I'd wake up and the first thing I would do is check and see how much sick leave I had. Cause I just don't want to go to work today because, you know, A, B and C people are going to make the day suck or the chief's going to make us do something dumb or he's going to tell us we can't do training, whatever it was. So I just didn't even want to go to work. And I started having, I guess you mean like suicidal ideations. Like they were just, they started off as like random, like every once in a while, like little things would just pop in my head. Like on my way to work, I'd have to take the interstate. Like I wonder what it'd be like if I just floored it and ran into the back of this tractor trailer. I'm like, no, that'd be bad. And I wouldn't think anything else of it. And that might happen like once every couple of days, but it got to a point where it was every day that I would drive into work. Like I should just swerve off the road into these trees. And it got to a point where in the, in the beginning, when I first started having these thoughts, I'm like, oh no, that's so bad. I don't even know why I thought that. It's so bad. And they got so regular that I didn't even think that it was nothing like that probably would be bad. And I actually like rationalize it. Like this is probably how it would go. And I didn't tell anybody about any of it. I think my wife knew that something was going on because she was always very wanting to know what I'm thinking, you know, what I'm doing, whatever. She like she likes to stay involved with what I'm doing. So she would always ask me, how do you feel? How are you doing? What are you thinking about? And I was nothing. I feel good. Things are good. I'm okay. And she was always, she always checked up on me, but I would always tell her things are good. Everything's fine. But I'm starting to get more and more of these little thoughts. My depression, it was, it took everything for me to get out of bed in the mornings just to go to work or to get up and deal with the kids or just do everyday tasks. But I think that mentality that I had from when I was in the army, that there's going to be times where everything sucks and you just got to keep going. And so I would just tell myself, I'm just going to embrace the suck and just keep going. And so I would force myself to go through the motions and I was just miserable. It's absolutely miserable. And it was August of 2012 is when I first started seriously thinking about killing myself. I had got to a point where it was like I had dug a hole and I had gone down so deep that I couldn't see anything else but the walls. I didn't, there was no way I could get out of it. I felt like I was completely alone. Even if I have family members asking, are you okay? Do you need anything? And I always know I'm good. 
because I didn't want to be a burden to them. Like they already had whatever was going on in their life or work or whatever. I didn't want to make any of that harder for them. So I would just, I'm fine. And just slowly digging myself deeper. And it got to a point where like all that I could, all that I knew was just how much life sucked and how depressed I was and how the work is pointless because every day that I go to work, I'm miserable and I'm probably not a good father because I'm always unhappy. And I know I'm not a good husband because I'm always unhappy. And if my wife asked me, how are you feeling? I would snap at her. Like, I'm tired of you asking me. I'm fine. Leave me alone. Um, and I had a buddy of mine that had gone all down at one of the hotels where a guy had used what's called an exit bag. They were really popular in Australia as a form of euthanasia for like their older populations or people that have a terminal disease or something. There was just a way that they could end their life on their own terms. But there was a guy down in, in one of the hotels that did it. And he told me that it was like, it was so bizarre that he walked in. He was just laying in bed. He had this bag on his head, looked like a big balloon because it was inflated, but no signs of struggle. He looked like he was just totally calm. He left a note, but we started getting flyers that I guess this started happening in other places. And I saw it and it's just, it's suicide by asphyxiation. And they said that it was completely painless, that it only took a few minutes for it was less than a minute for you to go unconscious and then minutes before you're dead. And up to that point, I would had been able to rationalize away every other option for suicide that would, that I could think of because I didn't want to how I didn't want to, for there to be a mess to clean up. I didn't want to overly traumatize anybody by what they would see. And as weird as it sounds, I didn't want it to hurt. I don't want my last thoughts to be something as painful. So then I saw this and I thought, that's the perfect solution. That's exactly what I need. And on the flyer that I'd actually gotten in the e my email from work, there was a little blurb in it about how instead of using like a big bag, like a garbage bag, that there was a way that somebody had figured out how to use the stuff from a CPAP machine. And I thought like, I got all the stuff for a CPAP machine the VA gave me because they, they, they said I, had, I probably had sleep apnea, but I, I couldn't wear the mask, so I just do all this stuff in a closet. But I was like, I got all that stuff. All I need is the gas. So one day we we're out running errands at Walmart, and I'm going down one of the aisles, and it happened to be the party section, and I see a big box of helium for balloons. And I remember seeing that one of the popular gases that people would use for these exit bags was helium. So I was like, okay. I'll remember that. I remember now I know where to get helium. And it was a few days later, had come home from work, had a really hard shift, was just exhausted, completely unhappy, just didn't, I was just over everything. And I decided that I was, that I'd had it. So it was a regular thing for my wife and I, we put the kids to bed and once they were asleep, if we didn't have any ice cream, I would say, Hey, I'm going to go up to Walmart and get some ice cream. And my wife would say, cool, or whatever else we needed, she would ask me to get. So I told her I was going to Walmart to get ice cream. And I remember her asking me, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm good. And I go up to Walmart 
and I get the box of helium and I'm standing in line. And that's the first time that I've ever been thankful that there was only one cashier working because there was a line of people and I'm sitting there waiting and a few moments go by and then just, I guess I would later find out that the act of suicide is usually a spontaneous act that people could think about it for weeks, months, years. But when you decide that this is like, I'm doing it, this is the moment I'm doing it, that it happens in less than 10 minutes. If it goes past 10 minutes, then your brain's able to start saying, oh, whoa, time out. But I think me standing in that line that I was able to, that was able to, I was able to have that, my, my subconscious say, what are we doing here? And that was the first time in a really long time that I actually felt genuinely afraid. Like I just like cold chill, this incredible sense of panic. And, and I actually like asked myself, like, what am I doing? And I stepped back and I told myself that this isn't how I, this, this isn't how I'm gonna, this isn't how I'm going out. I need to do something different. I need to change something. So stepped out of line, put the helium back on the shelf. And I told myself that I was going to change and that I was going to do whatever it took to never find myself in that situation again. So you go home and what do you do? So... I go home and my wife's in the kitchen and I walk in empty handed. And so my wife was thought she would get an ice cream. And our dinner table was right next to where the doorway to our kitchen is. And I sat down at the table and I told her what I had just done. And I just told her, you know, this is how I've been feeling that I've been depressed and miserable and I felt alone and then I had I'd taken almost all like all the steps to commit suicide and then stopped right before I was able to get that helium but that this is where I'm at and I just laid everything out and the first thing she asked me is why didn't you say something and I didn't have an answer for her. I don't know why I didn't say anything. I don't know if anybody knows has found themselves in that place. I don't know why they don't. I know it could be like that I had convinced myself that I don't want to be a burden to somebody else or dump my problems on them. Or if it's just outright denial or whatever. At the end of the day, looking back now, they were all excuses. Um, but I told her that I did, I wanted to change. I wanted to be better and that I was going to get help. And she told me that whatever I chose to do, that she would support me and that she would be there for me. And I broke down and cried because on the way home, as I'm telling, going through in my head, like, this is how I'm going to tell her, this is what I'm going to say. I was expecting that, that she might for what she might get mad at me 
for not not having said something like this could be a, a marriage ending situation. She might say you're a crazy person and she doesn't want the kids to be around me. So I had all these things that were going on. This is how it could play out. And the fact that she was still 100% in my corner, it just, I just broke down and I cried. And I don't know how long it, how long I sat there and cried. I don't even know. But she, she told me that we were going to get through it and we were going to get through it together. And so, so I think, I'm sorry, I think one of the, one of the differences in your story is you did, you broke down, you told her, you didn't make the attempt, which is obviously fantastic, but you didn't make that attempt. You told her what was going on. You guys had, you, as you told me earlier, you took ownership of what was going on, but then you, you went through everything and we can, we'll highlight some of the things you did, but you went beyond that. So what were the things that, that after that, what were the things? And obviously you see doctors, right? Yeah. I started off with the VA and my wife, she told me that like that were she would, that was her big thing is we're we're doing this together. So every appointment that I had, she would go with me. Um, and I found out that there's a lot of things that I was going through that I had internalized them, and I thought like I'm going through sleeping issues, depression, anxiety. I'm going through this, but I didn't even take into account that my friends and family were going through version of that themselves with me so started going to the VA and seeing their I went to their their mental health clinic and I got paired up with a neuropsychologist his name is Dr. Gorley smartest dude I've ever met and I laid out for him you know Hmm. what I had been going through what I experienced and that I had come close to suicide and that I, I was I wanted to get better and he laid out or he had me lay out like all the ways that I would deal with coping with the issues. And I, they were alcohol and drugs, all the medications that the VA and or my personal doctors would give me for depression, anxiety, pain, all the different things. Which I would take all of the alcohol and trying to figure out what made me feel better. But he found all my coping mechanisms and he would break them down and show me they weren't healthy and why they weren't a good resource for me to use. And I remember him telling me that I had an extensive list of coping, negative coping mechanisms. And he asked me, what are you going to do? They failed already because you found yourself in a place where you were ready to take your life. He said, so it's not a matter of if that situation comes around again, but when, so what are you going to do different than the first time? And so I had to, like you said, I had to took ownership of it. And I said that I needed to be more responsible with it and that there was no more blaming the situations that I'd been in or blaming other people that all that was, those were all excuses. I was going to own, these are my issues. I owned them. And I'm forward and make the changes that I need to make so that I can continue to be the best version of myself. And I found that with my wife going with me at the time, when I first started going, I was a little bit annoyed by it because I felt like she was babysitting me. And the doc 
would ask do you find yourself doing like these kind of behaviors or saying these kinds of things and like i was saying a minute ago like i hadn't internalized everything so i would say no i don't do that or i don't say that and my wife would say bullshit you say those things. you say all these negative things to yourself around the kids or you have these negative behaviors like drinking around excessive drinking i didn't think any of that was a big deal but i didn't think about how others were seeing it so having her there with me i realized that there was a whole other side to my issues that i didn't even know existed so having her there with me i felt like it was a twofold benefit where I could address the things that I thought were issues for me, but then I could also address the issues that I didn't even know were there, but were affecting the people that were around me. So I think that was a huge benefit for me, but just having her there to be able to keep me accountable for whatever I was going through. So I know that when we talked, you mentioned that group therapy didn't work for you, but the one-on-one, that was the good one for you. And you mentioned a couple of other things, guided meditation, yoga, exercise, and you picked up archery, correct? Yep. And in woodworking is another hobby that that kind of helped replace all the, the, helped replace the pills and alcohol and all that. Yep. And I think one of the key points you made is the post-traumatic growth over post-traumatic stress disorder. And I'll let you explain what you mean by that. Yeah. As I started going through the different types of treatments like in the beginning i was very standoffish with treatment because i just felt like it was a lot of getting in touch with your what you were feeling it was really touchy-feely like hippie kind of stuff for me but my wife and my doc they they told me you got to be you got to be receptive to this stuff you got to at least try it at least if you try it and you don't like it then you'll know that you don't like it because you know, whatever reason there is. But if you just say, I don't like it, and you don't try it, then you'll never know if it's really beneficial. So having that at where I'm just going to be open to any number of, you know, anything that I could come across was a huge change for me. And just through talking with like other coworkers or friends or people that I would meet, there was a lot of emphasis on the disorder part of post-traumatic stress. And they would, I would, and I know that for a while, I felt like I was defined by that disorder, that, that letter. And when I started going through my treatments and I was open to different things, I didn't like the idea of being, identified by the disorder. I didn't want to have, I didn't want people to associate me with a disorder. So I had to, I told myself that I was going to do other things, other, try everything I could come across, whatever, however outlandish it seemed to me, I was going to try it because I didn't know what was going to work for me or what I would actually enjoy. And just through the process of the one-on-one treatment, the guided meditation, the yoga, the breathing techniques that I found 
like one guided meditation that led into like yoga and then the yoga led into the breathing techniques. And then I found the breathing techniques actually helped me with my archery because then I could use those breathing techniques, even though I learned them in the army, it was a, just having a different bank of techniques that I could use. It made me better at archery and just seeing that all these things, they were kind of connected, but the more open I was, then the better I got at the things I liked. And I saw that there was just that the more open and receptive I was to being better, just being a better person, that there was all this opportunity for personal growth that I had learned so much about myself that I thought that I was super, you know, that I was tough and strong and that when I was in the army, but where I'm at now, it just, it dwarfs that I've grown so much as a person just through have the willingness to fail that, and I don't even know if fail is the right word for that, that to try something and just not like it or try something and it just doesn't work for me because they would, I could go in, like when I first went to group therapy, the person that was leading it would say, this helps a lot of people. But I was in that group of people that it didn't work for. But that's not to say that that doesn't take anything away from group therapy because there's a lot of people that it does work for. So having that open mind and the willingness to step into something that is uncomfortable, that could be uncomfortable in the beginning. And then to find out that there's room for me to grow as a person in that space, I just got, I almost became obsessed with it. That like just how much enjoyment and just personal growth I had found through trying all these different things, even if they didn't work for me, then I could at least say this particular modality didn't work for me, but I've experienced it. Now, when I come across someone who's, I don't know where to turn, I have a whole bank of place options that I could say, maybe you should try this. And they could say, I've never heard of that. And I can give them a little bit of a background on it. And, and then I found that even saying that I tried this, like group therapy, like I tried it, it really wasn't my thing, but it works for a lot of people. Some, when someone hears that, so he tried it, he didn't like it, but he kept going he found something else then that I found that a lot of people will say, okay, then if he can try it and not like it and find something else, then I can too. So you used a word in there that the word resilient, and that's what we've, that's what I wanted to talk to you about to end the conversation is what you're doing now with that word and your presentation. You want to give us the bare bones and the description of what the resilient rescuer is. Yeah. The resilient rescuer. It's, it's, it's my handle on Instagram and Facebook, and I have a blog as well. But that came about, I was actually after my first, the first time I gave my presentation on mental health. And after the, after my presentation, there was a handful of people that came up to me and they were, they had questions about you know, like where I saw myself, where things were going, how I think this applies to the fire service or people or just the world and or people in general. And I found that I kept repeating that word resilience that, you know, that we need to learn to be more resilient, that we need to have the ability to experience something 
that could be very negative and bounce back from it. But instead of it being, instead of it hurting us and taking us down like the path that it took me, that we need to learn ways that it makes us better, that we're able to recover from these kinds of things and move forward in positive ways. And so after that, I, after that conference, I decided that resilience, like that's a really good word. I like that word a lot. And so I decided to start the social media platforms and call it the resilient rescuer. And I just, I'll post, usually it's a little, sometimes it's stuff from my presentation, um, things that I'm going through, things that I've gone through, different techniques that I've, that I might've tried. I try to share as many of the positive ones as the ones that maybe didn't work so well for me, just because I feel like only showing the, like the wave tops or the, the peaks that nobody sees the downside to it. And I think that's a problem with our career field is the fire service as a whole is that we're identified by those peaks and those high points that we don't pay attention to those valleys that we can find ourselves in. So sharing the good and the bad and the ugly of what we can find ourselves in, I feel like there's value in that people seeing that it's okay to not be okay. And that that's, it's not a career ending situation or a life ending situation. It doesn't have to be that, that there's always a way to dig yourself out of that hole, that there's somebody there that can pull you up and get you on the path to being the better version of yourself. And that's all I want to do. That's the only thing that I really care about. Like when I do these presentations, I just did, I just did one at the uh, symposium in Norfolk last week that one person, if one person comes up to me and says, Hey, I really appreciate what you do. And I feel like I, that I can start counseling or whatever. That's a win in my book. Um, and just putting myself out there and showing everything, it is making an impact. And I'm seeing, I see that every time after I do a presentation, people come up to me and they're, they're thanking me and they're asking, like, can you come to my department and talk? And I've even found success with this with my kids because they're teenagers now and they're, gosh, they're about to be 15 and 16, but just the world that they live in now that I just tell them this is, they actually sat in on my class, on my presentation last week. So I just wanted them to see what I went through and for them to understand that it's totally normal to go through things that have an effect on you. Even if, you know, if that's a good effect or a negative effect, but if it's a negative effect, that's normal and it's okay to have these things bother you but it's not okay to just let them lie and not do anything about it. And my son told me, it was actually the day after the presentation, he told me that he'd already felt like he could come to me with stuff, whatever he was feeling. But he said, now I know that there's nothing that I'm going through that I can't bring to you now. And that's, and that's even better than that's better than a stranger coming up. Yeah. And I told, and that's what I told him. I said, Bob, that is the 
single greatest thing that anyone has ever told me. So I said, you just made all these years of work that I've been doing. I was like, all of it, 100% paid for. Because I was like, the fact that you feel that way, I said, that's the greatest thing that I think I could ever do. So it was, it was amazing to hear him say that. And so that's, but that's all I want is to be able to help people and get them out of those dark places. Tell everybody where they can find you. You can find, so the resilient rescuer, um, on Facebook and Instagram. I, in the beginning I had to spell check resilient cause I was spelling it wrong, even though I'd like the word. Uh, so make sure you're spelling it right. But my blog is actually the healthy rescuer.org. That's just a blog. I tell people that's like the ramblings of a moron that I put anything and everything up there, whatever is in whatever idea or topic pops into my head, then I'll put it on that blog just to get it out, out of my head and into the world. But I post all different types of anything that I learn, I put up there on those social media platforms. Um, and then I have a, another Instagram for just me, just Jeremy Johns, but uh, yeah, I mean, if anybody who has questions or concerns or whatever, you send me a message, I will do my absolute best to give back and help with anything that I possibly can. I think that what you're doing is fantastic. I think we'll wrap up here with the last two questions that I ask everybody if you're ready for those. Okay. The first one is about an everyday carry, something you carry with you that if you leave home without it, you feel naked without. You have something like that? Yeah. Actually, my, uh, my pocket knife. I've always been a fan of having a pocket knife just because it's a useful tool. My son got into scouts, and he found that was it was, a, it was a really good icebreaker for him. If he was doing something that he could ask somebody, hey, you happen to have a pocket knife? And a lot of people carry a pocket knife. A lot of people was, yeah, I got one. And he might, sometimes I just ask just because I don't need it, but I just, it's an icebreaker, and I might, you know, pick something off my shoe with it or whatever. But I thought that was really, that was a really cool way to, to try to start a conversation or whatever. Like it's, so it, it has more uses than just what people might think it's used for. So there was a time where I actually thought I, I actually did lose it when we moved. And every day I'm like, have you seen my knife? And it was, it bothered me so much, but eventually I found it. But yeah, that's my thing. I can't leave with any, I can't, everywhere I go, even if I'm wearing, like basketball shorts, I'll stick it in there. So then the next one, then the final question is a book that you might want to recommend listeners to, to get into a read, something that's going to give them some benefit. Yeah, I think the first book that I started reading, it was actually referred to me by my doctor, Dr. Gorley, was a book called um, On Combat by Colonel Grossman. His first name is escaping me. But if you search Grossman and On Combat, he also wrote a book called On Killing. But Dave Grossman, I just searched it. Yes. Yep. He does a fantastic job of taking like the psychological part of it's geared primarily toward or for military and police. But there's a lot of really good applications just for first responders in general. But it takes the psychological part of our like things that we go through and it breaks it down and shows why these are all natural things that we go through. And it, when I, the first time I read that, it, a lot of things like, okay, 
I remember going through like auditory exclusion, like where things got bad, I couldn't hear. That's a defense mechanism for that our body does to keep our hearing in. But there's just all these different things in the book. And it did a really good job of making me realize that that I wasn't alone and that a lot of people were going through a lot of mental health issues. So that's a definitely a copy I have. I've loaned it out. I don't even know how many times. And everybody that gives it back, they all tell me like it was a great book. So I definitely recommend that. Awesome. What I'll do is I'll, I will link that in the show notes along with your information. And, and you sent me a link about one of the things that happened in your third tour of Iraq. And I'll link to that in there as well so people can get a glimpse of something that you saw over there that would, would affect anybody. And the article is fascinating and devastating. So I'll link that in there as well for you. And like I said, I'll link your blog, your Instagram, your Facebook and everything so people know how to reach out to you and see if we can get you some more speaking engagements. Awesome. I appreciate the conversation, sir. That was that was in-depth and fantastic and very interesting. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And I will be in touch with you. I'll let you know when this is coming out, and, and I will give you a heads up. How about that? Sounds good, man. Thanks a lot. All right, man. Take care. You too. All right, we're out. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Things We All Carry. Head over to the website, thethingsweallcarry.com, for show notes, resources, and to sign up for the newsletter. Until next week. Take care of yourselves and remember to check in on each other.